0: Well, I think we've come a long way in this Doctrines of Grace study, but I hope for those of you who've been around through most of these that your horizons have been expanded when it comes to God's role and man's role in salvation. That's what this whole long Wednesday night series has been about, just trying to get more understanding of what part God plays in our salvation, what part we play in our salvation. Throughout church history, there has basically been two understandings of this. If you remember those those two words in the the first study we looked at, monergism and synergism. Monergism holds that salvation is a work of God from start to finish, whereas synergism is the thought that man cooperates with God in some meaningful way to bring about his salvation. And so far in our study, we've seen scripture pretty clearly teach the former, monergism, that salvation from start to finish, it is a gift of God's sovereign grace, which is why all that we've been studying, all these doctrines, this is why they're called the doctrines of grace. And surely we believe man has a part to play in salvation, namely repentance and faith. You must repent and believe to be saved. But as we will learn, even these responses, these necessary responses, are sovereign gifts of God's grace. And so far we have covered in this study... The first three major doctrines of grace, We're using the, the acronym TULIP, very well known, very common, summarizing the, the view that's been known as Calvinism and uh, the five major points in contrast to the five major points of Arminianism. You guys know all this by now. We've covered the T, total depravity. We start off with lessons on the fall, on original sin, total depravity, total inability of man. That's how we started off the first few months. And we moved into the U in TULIP for unconditional election. Did a study on God's sovereignty, God's election, and and the the conditionality of that election. We contrasted conditional election versus unconditional election. So that was the the second big chunk of this study was all about election. Then recently we just finished up the L of, of TULIP, limited atonement. We did a study talking about the atonement in general, exploring the atonement, that went into the extent of the atonement, and really went back and forth between the two views of uh, its extent, limited or unlimited, and so forth. So that, that's where we've come so far. It's been quite a while, but nonetheless, I'd say that the largest amount of work is behind us. There's still a few major issues to cover, and they are quite important, but we're going to find they're going to take just a lot less time to cover because we've... We've built such a theological groundwork from all that we've seen so far. A lot, of the, a lot of this is now just building on what we've learned in the past. We won't have to repeat everything we've already established. You know these studies and the doctrines of grace, they are pretty much meant to be in order and that they build on one another. You're, you're building up an understanding of God and his word and his grace. And so all that means is now we should be more than equipped to swiftly handle the remaining two subjects. And either way, that brings us to our subject for tonight, which is going to be that the fourth big section here. It's the I in TULIP. It's, it's concerning the subject of grace, God's grace in salvation. And the I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. This is in contrast to resistible grace or obstructible grace. Grace. Now, all Christians believe in salvation by grace. Both Calvinists and Arminians affirm salvation is not by works, but by grace alone. It's all, you know, since the Reformers, that's, been, that's unified Protestant Christianity. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Calvinists and Arminians affirm that both. The question, though, is how exactly God's grace works to save the sinner, What does it really do? How how far does it go and how does it function? How does God's grace enable salvation or bring it about? And, uh, uh, of course, the key question will be, can this grace be resisted or not? Can we, what if we don't want it? Can we say no? Can we stop it or is it irresistible? Does it always accomplish what it it intends? We're going to find out. Now to start off though I figured I'd, I'd just give us a little refresher on the historical side of this study of this debate. If you remember way back in lesson 1, we started off with the historical background and the uh, of this long-standing debate. Today we think of it as Calvinism versus Arminianism. But really we we learned way back in lesson 1 that this debate is really between monergism and synergism. God's role, man's role in salvation. And it goes way back to the early church. That this is, people have been going back and forth on these things for a lot longer than than Calvin and Arminius. In fact, you remember those two early figures that kind of set the stage for this longer debate. Remember the names? Augustine. Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine and Pelagius. And they had differing ideas of God's grace as well. Augustine understood God's grace much the same as we would today, as Calvinists would today. We'll get to that later. But first I want to give you a little refresher on Pelagius, and this will just again help frame us up. So you see a little section on Pelagian and semi-Pelagian grace. That's again, that's just derived from the guy's name Pelagius. That's all it's referring to. Now Pelagius, this guy, it wasn't necessarily the first, but he believed there's nothing really special about God's grace. God's grace is not supernatural. It's natural. It's it's not a supernatural thing. It's, It's natural. In other words, grace was a term used to describe the natural endowments God has given to mankind that he hasn't given to the animals. Our intellect, our emotion, our will. We as creatures, we have the ability to make choices, to do good. We know right and wrong. We have a conscience. And so he thought, this is God's grace. It's God's gift of these higher faculties to humans. That is his grace, these natural endowments. And Pelagius taught, by these alone, we've been given all we need to live a life free of sin and to attain our own salvation. So salvation, according to Pelagius, requires no special grace. You don't need any supernatural power. You have all that you need, just in God's gifts to you already. Pelagius denied original sin, inherited guilt, and total depravity. He thought man was basically good, and good enough to get to God by his own effort. And as you can probably understand, Pelagianism is basically work salvation, and it was rightly condemned by the early church. It's a false gospel. This is not a biblical understanding of God's grace. This is just work salvation all over again. And so Pelagius and Pelagianism was rejected. Modern day liberalism. has kind of picked up where he left off. That's not surprising. But suffice it to say. This is not a biblical understanding of God's grace. God's grace is not natural. It is quite supernatural. Now later on though. Some years later. Some people came and they modified Pelagius's views. And so they were later called the semi-Pelagians. Right? I guess that makes sense. And. On paper, you know, this is about when the, the medieval Catholic Church was beginning. They're really taking shape. On paper, the Catholic Church condemned semi-Pelagianism. But in effect, they pretty much believed in semi-Pelagianism. Uh, God's grace was not seen in semi-Pelagianism. God's grace, it's not saving grace, it's assisting grace. It helps you. It doesn't save you, it's assisting grace. They likewise deny total depravity. They claim that people, they're, they're basically good. They're not, they're not basically evil. They're, they're basically good. People, they're already oriented to God. They're already pointed to God. They just need a little assistance. They had a low view of original sin, such that man's free will wasn't lost or diminished in the fall. Man still has his free will. And therefore, sinners are completely capable of making the first step toward God in salvation. Men must be reconciled to God, but they would say, you know, we can do that on our own. We're, we're, that's up to us. We have all that we need to make that first step toward salvation on our own. And then after that, that's where God's grace comes in to assist us along the way. So that's what salvation takes. The sinner must make the first move to God then God responds with his grace, which assists the person in finding God, following God, doing good, and so forth. And so God's grace in salvation, the semi-Pelagian would see God's grace as, as an assisting grace, not quite a saving grace. Assisting power to help us in our journey of finding God and following God. But this grace only comes to those who make the first move toward God in faith of their own free will, so you have to act first, unassisted, and then God responds with assisting grace. And so you can understand that—that's pretty much still what Catholics teach today. Uh, they, this understanding of God's grace, though, is likewise false. Something we made pretty clear back in uh, last October. We studied the Reformation and, and contrasted a lot of Catholic teaching and all that stuff. You now, really, later on, as the Catholic Church they came to turn away from Augustine's high view of predestination. It was kind of their only alternative. So they de facto held to this semi-Pelagianism, and it's, it's really just all over Catholic teaching today. And, uh, but nonetheless, like we've established plenty in the past, this is still a false view of God's grace. This is a, an incorrect, unbiblical view of God's grace. That's what we're trying to get to, right? That's where we're at in this study. The fourth point. In tulip is all about grace. Trying to understand the role of God's grace in salvation. What does it do for us? How powerful is it? And so these are two quite false understandings of grace: the Pelagian, the semi-Pelagian. They're way off; it they're unbiblical. Let's kind of leave it there for now. That's a little historical refresher. Now let's bring it into a little bit more modern terms and talk about grace in Arminianism. Arminian grace. a next section in your notes. Now. You may have heard some Calvinists kind of lump together Arminians with uh, semi-Pelagians, that they're one and the same. It's not quite true, not historically true. You had men like Arminius and Wesley. These were like the key historical Arminians. And they had a couple of very significant differences with the semi-Pelagians. And they both relate to the role of God's grace. So I think this will help us. First, semi-Pelagians believed that man's nature was wounded by the fall, but it wasn't lost. In other words, they didn't believe in total depravity. Man's not that bad after the fall. No big deal. However, Arminians would disagree that Arminians would actually affirm total depravity, that man's nature became completely depraved after the fall. And then secondly, Semi-Pelagians believe, you know, people are capable of taking the first step to God unassisted. And then God's grace comes after that. You act first, grace comes second. And Arminians likewise disagree with that. They believe that, no, God's grace must come first. And then you respond. God's grace does not come after man's move to God, but before man's move to God. So two big differences with semi-pelagianism. Hearing this note, if you're if you're pretty familiar with these terms, you might be thinking, that kind of sounds like Calvinism, right? Armini- you're telling me Arminians affirm total depravity and they believe that God's grace must come first. We believe that. So what's so how do we differ from Arminians? There are key differences. I'm just I want to help you understand the differences more precisely. And the difference Now between Calvinism and Arminianism, we both would hold to a total depravity and that God's grace must come first. The real difference, though, comes with what Arminians call prevenient grace, prevenient grace. So let's let's talk about that now, and that'll really make clear where, where the differences lie. Remember the basic assumptions or assertions of Arminianism, Arminian theology. It's the fundamental beliefs behind Arminian theology. That God loves all people the same. God desires for all people to be saved in the same way. And there, therefore, Jesus died to save everyone. He paid for the sins of everyone in the same way. Furthermore, the lost, they can't be held accountable for not believing unless they really had the ability to believe. And they had to have been able to respond To God and to the gospel. If they're going to be held accountable for that. And so Armenians contend that God. He must extend the grace of Christ's death. To all people universally. In the same way. Everyone gets the same grace. That flows out of the cross. So that they're able to be saved. This grace. That comes from the cross. It's given to all people. Without exception. And it basically makes them. It enables them to respond to the gospel. And this is prevenient grace. This is the basic understanding of prevenient grace. It's universal grace to all people, enabling them to respond to the gospel and and then choose to be saved. This word prevenient simply means going beforehand. So think like preceding grace. That's a word we never use. Who uses the word prevenient in normal life? So just think of the word like preceding. It's preceding grace. Grace that comes first. Grace given before salvation. Now look, Calvinists believe in special grace, sovereign grace. That is likewise provenient. It comes before salvation. So, you know, we all are here agreeing that God's grace comes before salvation. That's good. That, that means you're not a heretic. Okay, that, that's, that's good to hear. But Arminians do not believe this grace is saving grace per se, but, but more of an enabling grace. Again, prevenient grace, it's given to all people without exception. And whereas Calvinists would see a special grace given only to the elect, Arminians see God giving this same grace to all people in the same way. So you see that difference? Now, let's ask: what is this grace and what does it do? This Arminian understanding of God's grace, as they would call it prevenient grace. What is it? What does it do? Well, again, it stems from the atonement of Christ. And through it, some key benefits of his death that are applied to all people. Now, again, it doesn't save all people. That would be saving grace. This grace, though, it does something to all people. And in particular, prevenient grace is said to erase the effects of the fall. That would be total depravity and original sin. So this grace, remember all, all the... All the bad stuff that happened after the fall, original sin, total depravity, we're bound, we're blind, we're dead, we're lost. Well, this grace just undoes all of that for everybody, not just for the elect or certain people, for everybody. And so, again, minions affirm that, look, after the fall, man was depraved and lost, but this grace undoes all that. And so, in effect, this is why people sometimes get confused when I would say that look, actually on paper, Armenians are Arminians believe in total depravity. That's true. It's just they immediately write it off because of this prevenient grace. So in effect, they don't they don't really affirm total depravity as a reality. It's been taken care of. It's gone. Original sin, taken care of, total depravity, taken care of by prevenient grace. It's, it's been erased. Man's mind is renewed by this grace. Man's free will is restored by this grace. And man's nature is inclined to God by this grace. This grace is like a magnet and it pulls everyone toward God. That's what God is doing with this prevenient grace. Arminius himself accepted man's total depravity and the loss of free will after the fall. Such that man is incapable of doing good. That sounds like a Calvinist statement. But then he says that prevenient grace, though, changes that for everyone. This infusion of grace is given to everyone, and it effectively makes people good. (laughs) Everyone now is made basically good, no longer bound to sin, enslaved to sin and Satan. It restores their will. Yeah, they would say your will was lost and diminished at the fall. But this grace gives it right back. Your free will is back. That you're now genuinely free because of this grace. And that gives you the ability to respond to the gospel. They would say that apart from grace, you can't respond to the gospel. Okay, that we would agree. But they would say, well, God gives that grace to everybody. So everybody can respond and and be saved. This is prevenient grace. So they would say, yeah, all people are born in sin. But all people are born in grace as well. And it really counteracts uh, all of that. That counteracts original sin to all depravity. But this is how they can, in effect, say that people are, are basically good now and that they can choose God. That now anybody can choose to believe. Historically, you know, Arminius, he came many years after semi-Pelagians and, and Pelagius. And Arminius, that's the guy, you know, Jacob Arminius. Remember, he's the, seen as the founder of Arminianism, the system today. When he was writing and studying, he understood the problem with semi Pelagianism, where they said, grace doesn't come first. You come first. You act, you decide, you choose, then grace comes second. And he understood why that was condemned. That's akin to salvation by works through self effort. You can't call that salvation by grace. This is after the Reformation. He believes in salvation by grace. But he's trying to, to uphold man's free will and liberty and all that stuff. And so Arminius solved this problem by inserting this universal, prevenient grace that enables people to make that move to God. In this way, you really get the best of both worlds. He was able to uphold man's free will and choice and salvation, where, hey, you are totally free to choose God and you must to be saved. But he can still say salvation is by grace. Because he inserts this little prevenient grace, universal grace right there before you decide to come to Jesus. But again, this prevenient grace, it's not saving grace per se. It's enabling grace. It's given to all people. Not all people are saved. All people are enabled to be saved, but not all people are saved. So it's not a saving grace. It just just think of that. This grace, it fixes people just enough that they can respond to the gospel to be saved. That's, that's what it does. And so again, go back to that word synergism where man must cooperate with God in some sense to affect his salvation. And so through this grace, man now is able to work with God to be saved. And so once a person now positively responds to, this prevenient grace then God responds with a saving grace that's when a saving grace will come in after now you respond with with faith and so forth I know this is this can be a weird concept a foreign concept but do I see nodding heads you guys with me you can stop me with questions at any time if you're not getting it but this is their concept of grace this universal grace that kind of generally fixes people makes them savable makes them good enough to believe Now keep in mind, though, that the Arminian believes that all of God's grace, both prevenient and saving grace, is resistible. That you can resist it. It's not sovereign. Human freedom has the ability to accept this grace or to reject it. Human will can override God's grace and thwart it. Which is why this grace is sometimes referred to as resistible grace or obstructible grace. The Holy Spirit does not have the power to impart new life as he wills. He only imparts new life to people who are willing. You have to be willing, and then he will give you new life. Instead, the Holy Spirit basically woos people. He seeks to draw them to faith in Christ, doing his best. But he's mostly thwarted and does not succeed. Most people reject this grace and don't believe. Okay, so hopefully you got it. You can see in your notes. I think we'll, we'll probably skip it for the sake of time, but I just included in the Remonstrance, Article 3, Article 4. That's just, hey, that's bonus points for you. If you remember the followers of Arminius, they put together his teachings into five points. And so points 3 and points 4 really capture their understanding of, of man and grace and it basically says what we've been talking about. You can, I'll let you read that on your own. It was, it was against these five points that the five points of Calvinism came as a response to these five points of Arminianism. We kind of did that in the past. So you can read that on your own. It just summarizes what we've been talking about. But let's, let's talk now about the problems of this understanding of God's grace. The problems with the Arminian notion of prevenient grace. You know, I think I say this often. It's, it's one thing for Arminians to assert something. It's another to prove it from the Bible. It's one thing for them to assert that this is a real thing. It's another for them to actually show in the Bible that this is a real thing, that prevenient grace is real. But here that the biblical case for prevenient grace is mostly non-existent. That There's not a biblical case. It's a logical case. Like all Arminian theology, what's driving this train? Like, why are you believing this? Where did this come from? And the answer is human reason. It's not Bible verses and theology. It's human reason. It's a system that that must go this way to uphold things we can't let go of, like a libertarian free will and the universal love of God for all people. But you're not going to find any mention of prevenient grace in the Bible. It's not mentioned once. You won't find a single verse explaining how such prevenient grace or preceding grace was given by God to all people. Not, not a single verse on that. Rather, the Arminian builds this concept entirely from inference. It's inferred. It's, it's a product of necessity. Like, we need this. It must be so. It's, just, it's the same with conditional election. Remember where God uses his foreknowledge to look at, forward in time See, hey, who will believe of me of their own free will? And I'm going to elect them. So conditional election, what they believe. Remember, the same thing. There's not a single verse on that. It's just, it's a logical necessity to fit their system, to uphold this libertarian free will that we are truly free to, to do anything, basically. Yeah, have a, a truly free will. And so it's the same thing here. It's just a logical necessity it's the only way to uphold God's universal love and man's complete freedom. You know, man must be completely free. That, that's the, the top of the list of their non-negotiable uh, beliefs. The problem is they understand like the fall has affected our free will, right? Arminius believed that. The fall, original sin, total depravity, our will is bound. He understood that. But then, okay, well, you know, what if God just gave everyone the same grace and just Erased all that. And so now we're back to being free again. We're, we're just as free as Adam because we've all received this same grace. And so with really a stroke of the pen, they just conveniently erase the pesky problem of original sin, total depravity. It's gone because God's given this grace to everybody. And so you are free now once again, as if it, it wasn't a real thing. Also... Remember, they believe God loves all people the same way. He desires for all to be saved. He sent Jesus to die for all people. The salvation is offered to all people. And so they believe God must have given sufficient grace to all people to enable them to believe and choose, and choose him. Otherwise, that's just not fair. You know, he has to make them able to believe. Otherwise, it's not loving. That's not fair. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be consistent, they would say. And so this, this universal grace flows out of Christ's universal atonement. Remember we just studied the atonement, limited versus unlimited. Did he die for the elect only or for all people? They obviously say his death was made for all people the same way. And so this grace is a consequence of that universal atonement. They go together. And again, I'll just say this prevenient grace, it is a logical necessity for Arminianism, but it is not a biblical reality. Those are two different things. And so at this point, you know, all the same criticisms of Arminian theology from our previous lessons, they're going to apply here. We don't need to redo all of this. We've, we've done it quite a bit. But just thinking back to conditional election and their notion of libertarian free will, it, it's just there's just not a biblical case. They're not pointing to a chapter and a verse to build their system. And to the contrary, we're going to see quite the opposite picture later on when we go to chapters and verses and look at God's sovereign grace. That biblical case is crystal clear. But instead, you know, all they do is they point to the same old verses. You have verses where the gospel is offered to all people. You have all people commanded to repent and believe. And and they infer... From these verses, well, if, if all people are being told to repent and believe, they must be able to repent and believe. And so God must have given them grace to enable them to repent and believe. And so there's, there it is. There's, there's this grace. It has to be there, uh, even though it, it's not there. And that's never stated in scripture. And to the contrary, we saw way back in lesson five, a lesson on total inability, that the exact opposite is true, that man, suffers from total inability because of his fallen condition. He's not able to repent and believe. What he needs is a special grace, a a sovereign grace, a grace that makes him new to truly believe. We'll obviously study that uh, starting next week. But now let's just look at a few verses here. We've seen these before. These are just the same old verses Arminians use to support prevenient grace. But we'll go through them quickly and you'll see No mention is made of prevenient grace or grace at all. These verses, they merely teach the necessity of faith, which is something we all believe. Like the Calvinist obviously believes in the necessity of faith. It's really, it's not not what we're talking about here. Uh, But they, they don't really prove their point. I'll read most of these for you, but if you want to follow along, why don't you turn to John 12, and we'll get to that verse in a second. John chapter 12. Kind of Let me just rattle through some of them here, though. You know, John 1, 12. It says, As many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John three sixteen and following. I mean, you know that verse so well. You know what it says. John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.40, Christ said, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 8.45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe. And we keep going. Just, it's the same verses where all it's talking about is the necessity of, of faith, which we believe. Like, yes, you have to have a genuine response of repentance and faith. We will argue later that. Uh, God's special grace is what enables that genuine response, but these verses don't establish anything that they're trying to establish, except by just leaps of logic and inference. John twelve thirty two is one verse that they will point to often when it comes to prevenient grace. John twelve thirty two, where Jesus said, "And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself." And so, look, he's going to draw all men to himself. This universal draw. And it doesn't mention grace, but they'll say, oh, that's got to be it. You know, all people are being drawn. This magnet of grace drawing all people to Jesus. And here, basically, we would simply say, like we've been saying with limited atonement, you know, all men is all without distinction, not all without exception. In fact, back in verse 20, the same context, there were Greeks in this crowd that Jesus was talking to. He was talking to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles, these filthy Gentiles, right? And what's the point he's making? That when he's lifted up, he will gather sheep from another fold as well. That's John chapter ten, and he will ha- his salvation is for all men, Jews and Gentiles, all without distinction, not all without exception. John sixteen eight is another verse they'll point to. This talks about the Holy Spirit, one of the Spirit's functions. John sixteen eight, and it says, and when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And they just point to this verse. They don't really make a case from it. In reality, this verse is, I mean, yeah, we're not going with, to disagree with this verse. Yeah, we believe the Spirit will convict the world of sin. But notice, nothing in this verse even hints that the work the Spirit does in the world changes everybody. He can convict their hearts And make them more accountable to judgment. But where does that verse say that the Spirit is giving grace to undo the fall, to undo original sin, to make them all good? It means convicting, but unbelievers can be convicted and they'll be more accountable thereafter for judgment uh, with, with the convicting work of the Spirit in the world. It's a verse that, yeah, okay, we believe the Spirit works in the world, but it's not saying what they're trying to prove at all. We have Acts 7.51. This might be the the top verse they will use to to support this prevenient grace. Acts 7.51, top of their list. It's where Stephen is preaching, and he's talking to the Jews who are about to kill him. And he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. And so, They love this, of course. They key in. there it is. Look, it said resisting the Holy Spirit. Look, they're resisting the Holy Spirit. Case closed. And uh, they'll they'll really key in here. Of course, it's rather simple. You just look at the context. They were resisting the Spirit. That's true. It does say that. What work of the Spirit were these sinful Jews resisting, though, as Stephen is preaching? Is this referring to the work of the Spirit of applying prevenient grace to their hearts, that these guys were resisting prevenient grace? Is this the work of the Spirit drawing sinners to God? No. In the context, what work of the Spirit were these Jews resisting? Well, you look at the verse before, you look at the verse after, Stephen is quoting the prophets. He's talking about how the Jews have rejected the prophets, the word of God to them, through the prophets, like all their forefathers. This is the work of the Spirit in the message of the prophets. And so in essence, this is referring to the general call. God, through the Holy Spirit, does issue a general call to all people. That general call most certainly can be resisted. We'll, we'll learn more about that later. But this verse says nothing of them resisting this prevenient grace. This is merely resisting the call to salvation. We all believe that anyway. Again, it's, just, it's nothing controversial here. It, it's one thing to, to assert something. It's another to demonstrate it. And there's just no demonstration that this is a, a proof text of prevenient grace. It's just, yeah, these stiff-necked Jews were rejecting the gospel call through the prophets throughout the ages. And they still are. Yeah, okay, we believe that too. That's not prevenient grace. Lastly, I'll mention Titus 2.11, where it says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Okay, finally, you've got a verse that actually mentions the word grace in a a list of proof texts for prevenient grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But notice here, grace of God in this passage, it's an aorist, passive, indicative. It's talking about a past tense manifestation of God's grace in history. It's talking about Christ. The grace of God has appeared. It's talking about the manifestation of Christ. He is grace and truth incarnate, is he not? And this verse is clearly talking about the coming of Jesus. Even still, when it says bringing salvation to all men, if you remember, we covered this verse with limited atonement. And we would argue it's another case of all men without distinction, not all men without exception. In Titus 3.4, Paul speaks of God's love for mankind. It's just God's love for people for the world, for earth, for, for uh, humans, all without distinction, not all without exception. In fact, even earlier in Titus, Titus Paul gives a pretty condemning state uh, of the lost, of people apart from Christ. And for example, back in Titus 1.15, he said, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Just think about that. Stop and think about that. The whole contention of prevenient grace is that, okay, after the fall, and really after Christ, at the very least, after the atonement, God has given this grace to all people now. And what does this grace do? This preceding grace. It erases the effects of the fall. What were the effects of the fall? You have original sin. Okay, that's gone. You have total depravity, which affects our mind. Our mind is darkened in understanding. Our eyes are blind to truth. Our ears are, are deaf. Uh, we're spiritually dead. Our wills are bound and held captive. We're just, we're, 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 we're lost, right? And this grace erases all that. Does that sound like Titus one fifteen? Paul is describing the unbeliever in the present moment. Does it sound like, that, you know, that used to be true, but now they're all better. No, notice how he describes the unbeliever, their present state. Does it sound like they've been restored? Does it sound like total depravity has been erased when he says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. He doesn't say they used to be defiled, but you know, thankfully this grace has come in and restored their mind and their conscience. No, they're still defiled. Because they're still lost, they're still depraved, they need a special grace. You get my point? And that really leads into the the next thing I'll mention here, the next uh, argument against prevenient grace. And that, you know, the Bible's clear teaching on man's condition after the fall, it just makes clear that this prevenient grace doesn't exist. Again, they like to pay lip service to total depravity, but effectively they undo it by prevenient grace. It's just not the picture you get from Scripture, though. Look, if you want more on this, go back to Lesson 4, Lesson 5 in this study. It's on the website. That was total depravity, total inability. And in both those lessons, we just showed the, the overwhelming picture in Scripture that mankind, apart from Christ, right now, even after the atonement, that they're still dead. They're still lost. They're still blind. They're still deaf. They're still dumb, spiritually speaking. They're still totally unable to come to God right now. And so where's this grace? Where's the mention of this special prevenient grace that has undone all that? It's just not there. Rather, the consistent picture of the unbeliever in this present age is they're still dead, they're still blind, they're still lost. And just real quick, I gave you some verses that recap that. This is like the cliff notes of total depravity and total inability that we studied. Of man's present falling condition, right? Man is still spiritually dead. And you know Ephesians 2, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. That's him talking about our state before salvation. It doesn't say like, we, well, we used to be children of wrath. Then, thankfully, pervenient grace came in, made us all, you know, basically good. And then we were saved when we chose Christ. No, rather, he says after that, but God, verse 4, saved us by his mercy. He saved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. By grace, you have been saved. See, the real picture of God's grace is it's saving. It's not enabling. It's not assisting. That's sanctifying grace. But his grace in that moment of salvation, it transforms you. You were dead. Now you're alive. That's saving grace. It's special. It's sovereign. And we'll find later, irresistible as well. So I'm not going to read all these verses. You know, man is still spiritually dead. Man is still blind to the truth. In you know, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to them, to him. And he cannot understand them for they're spiritually appraised. He doesn't have the ability to understand spiritual truth because he's dead, because he's blind. He no ability. You know, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, you know, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of Christ. Their minds have been blinded by Satan. You know, read Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. It says, the Gentiles, they're currently walking in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart, and have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, and so forth. That's a big verse. Does that, does that sound like, you know, hey, these Gentiles... They used to be lost and depraved and blind and darkened and, and callous and hardened. But now, because of grace, you know, they're, they're basically okay. They're basically good. They can at least choose God. You get what I'm saying. No, it, it doesn't. Man is still spiritually dead. Man is still blind to the truth. Man is still enslaved to sin and Satan. You know, John 8, Romans 6, we slaves of sin. Second Timothy 2, 25 and 26... Where God must grant repentance uh, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Having been held captive by him to do his will. Right? We're, We're enslaved to Satan. That doesn't sound like free will to me. That sounds like a bound will. Bound and held captive to do his will. Satan's will. That's the picture of the lost. Right now. Bound, held captive by the will of Satan. The prince of the power of the air like Ephesians 2 said. And lastly, man is still a rebel and a hater of God. John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light. Those in the world, they, they hate God. They hate his ways. They hate the light. They don't want to come to the light. They have no desire, and they never will because of their condition. Like Romans 3 says, there's not one who is good, not one who seeks after God, not even one. It's the condition of, of man, fallen man. There's no real seeker unless a special grace comes. No one's turning to God. No one will choose him of their own free will because their will is lost and blind and dead and so forth. So you get the point. Does this look like the picture of once depraved sinners who have since been liberated by a grace? No, rather the consistent teaching of scripture is that The lost, they're still lost. They're still dead. They're still blind. They're still totally unable to know God or choose God on their own. Something truly supernatural must happen. That the dead must come to life. If they are to have that necessary response of repentance and faith, that's true. You must repent. You must believe to be saved. But until these spiritually dead people are raised to spiritual life, they will never be able to repent and believe and that special grace is what really comes first, which we'll see next week. Lastly, I'll just say, you know, this whole doctrine of prevenient grace, it's, it's really just offensive to God's sovereignty and his omnipotence and his power. It really is just a, a, a mark against God. Arminians still say like, well, hey, hey, God, you know, God chose to do this. He chose to tie his own hands and giving us this free will. But, you know, it really contradicts their claim that God desires all to be saved. If he really wanted everyone to be saved, why would he give us this free will that's led to billions damning themselves? I thought he really wants us all to be saved. And, you know, they make make the God of the universe bound by man. At the end of the day, God's will is subject to our will. God's plans are subject to our plans. God's power is subject to our power. He's trying to save all people. The Holy Spirit, you know, he's desperately pleading with all people. He's wooing all people. But, you know, he's mostly a colossal failure because people, they just reject. Their, their pesky free wills are just too strong, too stubborn. And most people reject and resist this grace. And so they, they go to hell. But, you know, God's he's trying his best He's doing a lot. You know, he sent Jesus. He loves everybody. He gave them all this, this great grace, this prevenient grace. He did a lot for them. Just, you know, they just didn't want to believe. So off to hell they go. It's just not the picture of scripture, which we've seen countless times. It presents a completely sovereign God who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. And none can resist him and thwart his will. You know, the Arminian view of grace, it really means that ultimately God doesn't really save anyone. Rather, by his grace, he makes men savable. He enables people to save themselves. God's grace opens up the path of salvation like, hey, I've I've given you everything you need now. Here's the door. The path is clear. You just got to walk through it and you'll be saved. But you still got to walk. You have an essential role to play. But God doesn't send anyone down that way. People must choose of their own free will to go to Christ. And people, therefore, have this vital part in saving themselves that's apart from grace. You know, it's their free will, unaided by grace at that point after prevenient grace. And since all people have it, it really gives ground for boasting. Right? Man's will is the ultimate deciding factor in salvation. That's the unavoidable conclusion. Like the linchpin in Arminian theology. Why are these people in heaven? Why are these people in hell? God did everything he could for all of them. Why are these people in heaven? Well, they chose. They chose of their free will. Why are these people in hell? Well, they didn't choose. And so the people in heaven, is that not some ground for boasting? Like, well, hey, good thing I chose. Good thing, look what I did. Good thing I walked through that door. Good thing I was wise enough, come to my senses and, and choose God. But at the end of the day, God, and you know, he loved all these people. He sent Christ for all of them. He died for all of them the same way. He gave them all this same grace to you know erase the fall. He did everything he could for them. But it's, at the end, it's, it's really up to us and our will. And that's, that's the lynchman. That's the deciding factor in salvation. But this view of salvation is simply incompatible with Scripture's high view of God's grace, whereby we're saved entirely by his grace, all to the praise of his grace, where there's no room for boasting. So I'll just finish and read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, where Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus doesn't say by your own doing. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's clear there. It's, it's clear everywhere. And this is why you know, we reject prevenient grace, the Arminian understanding of grace. It's, it's non-existent as defined by Arminian, uh, Arminianism. Hey, we believe in grace, in saving grace, the necessity of grace, and that is prevenient in the sense it must come first, but this is just not the biblical view of grace. There is a biblical view of God's grace in respect to salvation, and that's what we'll turn our attention to next week, or rather in a couple weeks, we're off next week, we'll come back and look at next that the Calvinist view of grace, irresistible grace, special grace, saving grace, And we'll see how clearly scripture just lays it out. And it's as clear as day from the word. So we will do that next time we're back. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, we again praise you as the God of all grace. And we can do nothing but praise you for your grace. We are nothing apart from your grace. We confess we are not wise. We are not mighty. We are not noble. We're not better. We're not holier. There's no reason we we should have been chosen, or that we believe. Left to ourselves, Lord, we confess we would never come. That in our old selves, we we were like the rest, hating you, loving sin, going our own way, and just lost, blind, and dead. And we can already, though, even we haven't, even though we haven't studied it this evening. We, I trust we already know enough to, to thank and praise you for being the God of, of sovereign grace who brings the dead to life and, and called us to new birth that we might believe, that we might repent, that we might follow, but even then we can't boast because it was still by your saving grace, your special grace, Lord. We thank you for this. We praise you. We know this is all, your whole work of salvation is all to the praise of the glory of your grace. You're God of all grace, and I I pray we have a deeper appreciation for that tonight by understanding what your grace does not look like. We can uh, have a better understanding of what it does look like and thank you for it. And may we live under your grace and, and continually thank you for it each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.